Welcome to the Arrowhead Attic Podcast. I am Sterling Holmes, Matt Connor, downgraded to out. Instead, getting the call up, Tim Grunard, Chiefs Ring of Honor, Hall of Fame, and new author, View from the Center. Tim, how are you? It's great to be on with the addicts here at the Arrowhead <laughs> Attic Podcast. I'm doing great. I, I apologize for the echo as I'm sitting in an empty classroom in a high school in Roland Park, Kansas, at Bishop Miege. Uh, just got off the field, little practice uh, with the boys. We're getting ready for the state champs in St. James. So a big game for the Stags. But it's great to be on with you guys. I'm excited to talk about the book and maybe a little bit about those Chargers coming up here in a couple of days. <laughs> we'll appreciate you joining us. And as always, Arrowhead Addict sponsored by KC Beer Company, <laughs> KC Beer Co., Brewing the beers from the purity laws of 1516. We talk about it every week. Casey Bierko, it's the best beer you will have. Anyone who has tried it always reaches out and says, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I, drinking the Koenig Eisbach, very difficult to pronounce, but very, very delicious. 11%. 11%, Tim. So if you see me at the end of the show, little slurring, says this. It's this right here. That's is good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dry beer bitter. That's dry all I know how to order. That's all, all you need. Wo ist ein Badzimmer in dry beer bitter? Bathroom, hey. three beers. Get ready because the Chiefs will be playing in Germany next year, probably in uh, Frankfurt. That's going to happen. And uh, right around uh, the, uh, what do they call that, their fall festival or their the, the Big beer drinking craziness they have. Oktoberfest. I mean, come on, Granny. Oktoberfest. So <laughs> Oktoberfest, Chiefs football in Germany. You better go to, to the uh, the beer. Uh, uh, I've been to the place uh, right off of Warnell. A nice place over there for the uh, beer company. Uh, but uh, great beer, good German beer. And, uh, yeah, the Chiefs will be in Germany next year. Before we talk about the absolute dismantling of the Cardinals that the Chiefs were on display with, let's talk a little bit about your book, View yeah. from the Center. You wrote a book, not only former football player, Chiefs Ring of Honor member, not only in radio, but now an author. Give us a little background about this book. Yeah, hey, thanks for uh, bringing me on to talk about it. You can get it at timgrunhart.com, and if you order it there, you'll get an autographed copy. But you can get it anywhere. You get it at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, at all the different uh, bookstores. It'll be coming up here next week. It'll be in the bookstores, but online at just about every uh, uh, website that sells books. It's on there. So, yeah. So, you know, when COVID came around, I was looking for something to do. You know, like all of us, we were just kind of sitting around in the house and uh, not much going on. So I said, you know, I got a lot of great stories. Uh, I loved my time with the Chiefs in the 90s. And I wanted to kind of talk about the relationship that was built in the 90s between the players and the fans and really built a foundation to where the Chiefs kingdom is now. And so I talk a lot about that, how the players and the fans really came together through radio shows and through personal appearances and through, you know, just going to different uh, uh, venues and, and bonding and hanging out with the, uh, with the fans where we really built a nice relationship. So I talk about that a lot in the book. And, you know, people always say that Arrowhead is a college-like atmosphere, you know, because it's loud and because everybody dresses in red. But I contend it's more than that. I, I think the one of the reasons why it's a college-like atmosphere is because of the relationship between the fans and the players. 
you know, you always have the student section in college and, you know, the alumni and, and of course, you know, just a general fan that's at the home game. Uh, and I think at Arrowhead, because of the relationships that were built in the 90s, that they pretty much got a little bit of ownership of the players. And uh, it became like a college like Denver because let's say they ran into Tim Grunhardt at the levee on a Thursday night and hung out with him. They felt like they knew him. They felt like there was a relationship on Sunday. So, you know, and there was. So that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I wanted to talk about that. Plus, I wanted to talk about a lot of great characters, a lot of great people that played football for the Chiefs in the 90s, starting with Derek Thomas and Neil Smith, who were heart and soul of defense. And then you look at guys like Dave Zott. Uh, you talk about John Alt on the offensive line. And, of course, Joel Montana, Marcus Allen, Dan Saliamua, uh, Rich Gannon, all kinds of great names, great people, great stories. And uh, so we talk a lot about the inside kind of poker of what was going on in the locker room during games and, and uh, you know, just a lot of fun stuff. So if you are a fan of the Chiefs and, and grew up watching the Chiefs in the 90s, you'll love the book. If you're just a fan of football history and you want to know how this Chief Kingdom started, uh, maybe you were too young to remember the 90s, but if you read it, you'll understand how this relationship was built up. So that's what I tried to get across. Yeah, the book is phenomenal. Highly recommend it. Again, go out and get it. Comes out on the 20th. Let's get to the dismantling of last Sunday. The Chiefs, all the talk, all, all offseason was what's going to happen with Tyreek Hill leaving? Everyone, not everyone, a lot in the national media were talking about, well, Aaron Rodgers, he'll be fine without Devontae Adams, but the Chiefs, Mahomes, well, they're going to struggle without Tyreek Hill. Turns out Tyreek didn't need the Chiefs. He had a very successful first game down in Miami, and the Chiefs, they didn't need Tyreek Hill. What did you take away from that first game? Yeah, it reminds me of the Who song with the old boss is same as the new boss. <laughs> and, you know, hey, listen, a lot of people wrote Patrick Mahomes off. A lot of people thought that, you know, because Tyreek Hill was leaving, it was taking away one of his major weapons, and the offense would struggle a little bit, at least early. Well, that was completely false. They, the Chiefs were able to spread the ball around to nine different receivers. I think four different guys had touchdown catches. You know, Travis Kelsey had another 100-yard game. I thought an unbelievable stat. I don't know if you saw this, Sterling, but uh, the Arizona Cardinals haven't had a tight end catch the ball for over 100 yards since 1988. <laughs> And, and Travis Kelsey now has 37 games in his career of catching over 100 yards. Just amazing. Uh, this, I think the offense played really well. Uh, there's a little couple things I'm worried about. You can't put the ball on the ground as many times as we did in the game. We, was, we obviously only lost one fumble, but the ball was on the ground about four or five times. Can't do that. Offensive line, I know Patrick Mahomes didn't get hit a lot, but when he did get hit, it just didn't look good. It just didn't feel comfortable for anybody especially the Kansas City Chiefs fans that were just holding their breath every time he went down, and so was I. So they got to do a better job, especially against this Charger team. But offensively, they moved the ball, did a great job, scored uh, you know, a bunch of points in the first half and kind of put the game away. And then if you look at the defense, the defense with that speed, man, I'm telling you, I love this defense. I love the speed. I love the intensity. I love the toughness. Those guys will freaking knock your head off. And if you look at the first seven drives, right, you had five punts and a turnover. That's winning football. And the Chiefs haven't been able to do that in a while consistently. And I think you're going to see it this year. You can't teach speed, Sterling. You can teach <laughs> toughness. You might be able to teach a little bit of technique and fundamentals, but you can't get a, a turtle to do a sprint. 
Yeah, you ain't teaching me, baby. You ain't teaching me. I was a groundhog grinder, man. I listen. Yeah, you know, when I got out on a screen, I was trying to high step it as much as I could, but it just didn't look pretty. But I will tell you this: this defense is intense. It plays hard. It's got a bunch of young guys, and uh, I really like the way they played this week. Were you shocked at all at how quickly the defense gelled? Obviously, it's a long season. It's one week. They went up against a banged-up Arizona Cardinals receiving corps, especially. Kyler Murray's had all this offseason drama surrounding him with the contract situation. Obviously, probably should have studied more. But what did you take away? Because I thought it was going to take, you know, six-plus weeks. We've seen recently under Spags, it takes a little time early for the defense to gel. Do you think they – are gelling faster than expected, or was this maybe some situation where we maybe need to take a step back and say it was the Cardinals, a lot of situations surrounding it, and take the full picture into view here? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, the Cardinals obviously had some some injuries at the wide receiver position, but you know, anytime you're playing against an athletic quarterback in the first game, you got to be fundamentally and technique sound, and obviously assignment sound because if you if you're not doing your job, you're going to give up some big plays to that quarterback. And the Chiefs did their jobs. They were able to contain him pretty much. They get one or two runs that were worth a damn. The rest of them were just kind of scrambling around and running for his life. Uh, but I will say this, uh, you know, yeah, you have some young guys. And, and usually young guys take a little bit of time. But all indications are is that Bolton, who is the green dot on that defense, is one of the smartest guys on the field. So if you got a young guy that's smart, and a young guy that has that intensity and young guys has that athleticism, but is really smart. I guess there was a story uh, in the locker room. I heard that uh, uh, I think one of the other linebackers was, you know, kind of spouting off, hey, you know, what do we do on this situation? Uh, you know, they were kind of just talking back and forth. And Bolton's like rattling off what everybody's got to do. Just what left after right. He knew what was going on every position and uh, and and was just right on all of his assignments, not only for him but for everybody. And that that is a huge, huge advantage for the Chiefs. If you got a young guy who understands the concept of the defense, understands the schemes, and has that athleticism, that's a good sign. Uh, that's that Mizzou education. Come on now, baby. That's it. <laughs> as far as the defensive line goes, Chris Jones was extremely dominant. Uh, yeah. Mike Dana, surprisingly, I think I saw had six pressures. Karloftis was, to me, the guy to watch as a rookie. The big knock against the Chiefs recently has been they can develop almost any other position except for edge rushers, at least whether it's drafting, identifying, developing, somewhere there's been at least a small disconnect. Karloftis was a week one game ready performer. That was the whole promise surrounding him, and he showed up, lived up to that hype. But to me, it was so refreshing to see him not dive down against Kyler Murray, not get fooled. As a rookie, that is extremely impressive. Yeah, and I think all the rookies have done a nice job of, you know, obviously uh, McDuffie's hurt and was put on IR, which is a sad deal because I thought that he competed out there too. Listen, all you ask those young guys to do is compete. You know, stay within the system, understand what you're supposed to do, and compete, and they all did that. Um, listen, they're going to be tested this week. Let's face it. I mean, you got Mike Williams. Uh, that looks like Keenan Allen may be out, but you got Austin Eckler, who uh, has hurt the Chiefs in the past, you especially catching a ball out of the backfield. Uh, the linebackers in the past weren't athletic enough to cover him. I think we have those guys this year. Uh, but listen, if you get three sacks like the Chiefs did, it was great to see Carlos Dunlop get a, get a sack. Mm -hmm. He's going to get his, man. He may not flash around and do – 
uh, some of the uh, the little things that Carl Loftus does as far as like finishing plays and doing all those kind of things. But the guy knows how to sack the quarterback, and that's what he's brought in to do. One game, one sack. So I would think that he's going to get his between six and ten sacks like he always does. Uh, so that's good news. So, you know, I really like the way that they rallied around the ball. Uh, I like the way that they they played within the system and they did a good job. So defensively, offensively, uh, everything was was pretty good. Um, you know, they did play an inferior opponent, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, you play who you're assigned. I mean, listen, they didn't say, hey, listen, who do you want to play? They said, you're playing the Cardinals, right? And they went out and they played the Cardinals. And so they did what they were supposed to do, and they beat the Cardinals. Uh, you know, and if you look at some other teams that are out there, Cincinnati Bengals, yeah. right? New quarterback, right? All kinds of new faces on that team. Uh, I mean, on the Steelers team, and the Bengals go out and lay an egg. You know, mm. could have done that also. So, and they didn't. So, Andy Reid, and here, and here is I think the crux for everybody out there that's listening. Andy Reid does such a wonderful job of preparing his football team. And you ask, well, how does he do that? And in, in, in what aspect are you talking about? Situational football. Andy Reid does such an unbelievable job of preparing his guys in situational football. And if you look at this game and you look at all the other games that were going on around the NFL, the teams that had the situational football aspects wired like the Chiefs did, did well. The Chiefs did great in the red zone, Right. Chiefs did pretty good in, in converting third down. They did great at stopping. I think the Cardinals were three of twelve in third down situations. You know they they uh, they they took care uh, they took care of the football basically. You know they only had one turnover, but uh, so those situations that are so important in a football game, the Chiefs were ready, and the young guys it wasn't too big for them. So Andy Reid did a good job of getting his guys ready in the situational football aspect. Very unbronco like after that disaster last night. Right. That, well, that's why you, you you pay that quarterback and bring him in, trail his assets. It's for your kicker to try uh, one of the longest field goals in NFL history. As far as Andy Reid, though, goes with offseason, training camp, OTA, preseasons, the, it's always been told he's had a very, very difficult regiment, right? It's a lot different than other teams. A lot of other organizations have gone away from playing their starters, especially the superstars, right? Well, Andy sees value in playing Mahomes, Kelsey, at least for a little bit, right? Do you see value in that? And is this some sort of realization that it works? And do you think other teams could potentially start going back to this, seeing how quickly the Chiefs typically start? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I think you hit it around their head. on the head. You look at Green Bay, they just weren't prepared. Aaron Rodgers looked off. The timing looked terrible. There were a bunch of teams that just didn't look, uh, you know, the Dallas Cowboys just didn't look like they were ready to play. And part of that is because of, you know, number one, there's three preseason games. And like you said, the, the, the veteran guys, superstars aren't playing on most teams. And then you have two weeks off, which is a lot. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see teams say, hey, listen, what teams have success early in the year? And if you look at the Kansas City Chiefs as one of those teams that had success, well, what's the formula that they, they use to get themselves ready for the first game? And that formula was, once again, like you said, Andy Reid always has tougher practice than everybody else. We call it the mental physical. He, he's going to test you mentally, and then he's going to physically, physical, physical practice you, and then go to a mental practice, and he's going to challenge you mentally after he tires you out physically. And I think also you see him putting guys in and kind of knock the rust off and see what the speed is in a preseason game. Now, listen, 
I'll give you the old adage, you know, when you go to, you know, your mini camps and your OTAs, there's one speed that's on the field. And then when you go to training camp, that picks up about a half step to a step. It makes it a little bit tougher, a little bit faster. Guys are a little bit more intense. Then you go to preseason games and it picks up a little bit from practice. You're going against somebody else. It picks up about another step, step and a half. But when you get into regular season, it's a whole different speed. And uh, I think a lot of times guys just aren't ready for that speed because they haven't had the practice. They haven't had the uh, the opportunity to see that. And you forget after six, seven, eight months, you just forget how fast it is. Whether it's physical, how fast it is or mental, how fast it is. It is a challenge for guys to get themselves ready for a first game. First games are always the most nerve wracking for coaches because you just don't know what if you did enough to get ready. Chiefs obviously did. As far as Nick Allegretti is concerned, I was extremely impressed. I have no idea how difficult that is, but hopefully you could at least let us know a little bit here. Trey Smith goes down, middle of the game. Obviously, you're not, you're always prepared to play, right? That's the whole adage. You have to always be prepared for your number to be called. But at the same, t- same time, you're not fully expecting to, to go in in that situation. How impressed were you and how difficult is it for that to happen? Yeah, it's difficult. It really is because you're just not getting a lot of reps with the first team. That that's what the difficulty is. Is you know when you're in your practice and let's say you have ten plays of offensive inside run and ten plays of a blitz period and ten plays of a team period. Uh, you know some of those guys may get one or two snaps at the most in a period, if if not zero snaps. Because listen, the offensive line especially they got to start working on the continuity, the communication. And kind of understanding, you know, what guys need and how much help they need and and just just a little integral parts of the game. So not a lot of rotation going on during practice, especially at the offensive line. So fast forward to a game where all of a sudden you're thrown in there and you probably haven't had a lot of reps in the offense. You're probably running scout team, which means you're running the other team's offense. And uh, so when you're thrown in there, it's a tough job. But, you know, Al Grady's a pro. The guys played center and he played uh, uh, guard uh, during the preseason. He's kind of that swing guy. He's kind of that uh, uh, the uh, you know the, what do they what do they call the like Zobris was for the the Royals back in the day where they could put him in any position. And he's going to do okay, uh, and he he's done that. So uh, I was impressed with him. He's a tough kid. He's from Chicago. What do you expect? I mean, he's a tough <laughs> outsider. So uh, I thought I thought he'd have uh, uh, some success, but. You know, we want to get Trey Smith back in there. I guess he practiced today, which is good news. Uh, but, um, you know, Al Grady did a nice job of stepping in, and that's what a pro does. Uh, I would like to say, too, you're getting some absolute love in the comments right now. Uh, one person says, Tim, you could still play for us even now. Looks like you're in great shape. Love it when you play. You could probably still go out there, right? Yeah, Chiefs I, need I, someone. I may look like I can, but you got to watch me walk. If you see me walk, you'll know that there's no way that that old bastard can go out in the field again. But yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I think it was Doug. But uh, yeah, listen, yeah, I mean, I, the old adage is there's not a lot of 300 pound 80 year olds walking around. So you know, you you gotta you gotta try to get back into shape after after you're done playing because guys will balloon up. Usually, offensive linemen go one or two ways. Either they get skinnier and they get in shape. Or they get really fat and uh, and waste away. So let's hope Willis, that's not doing. Will Shields got small, not small, because he's a big dude. It's just his build. But like you see, Will Shields now, and I grew up with his son Siobhan. We used to play basketball and stuff. So I, I was always around Will Shields. I'm like, sure. this is a massive man. I saw him a couple of years ago, and I'm like, 
I mean, I'm 5'10", 170, so I'm still tiny compared to him. But you're like, wow, this is a guy who's lost a lot of weight. It's so impressive. Yeah, like I said, you go one way or the other. But, uh, yeah, Will's done a great job, too. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, you just got to be dedicated to what you're doing. And running around with these high school kids keeps you in shape, too. It, it, uh, it's a challenge at times. But uh, I appreciate appreciate the uh, comments on that. Uh, staying on uh, the offensive line with Orlando Brown Jr. One, how did he look game one? He obviously is betting on himself this season. That was the whole, I don't want to say drama, right? Because I don't know if you consider it drama. But there was at least a little bit of disconnect between him and the front office. Him not wanting to get an agent until late in the offseason. He finally gets an agent. The agent, first client. Little interesting situation there. I guess one, how did he look? Two, what would you do if you were him? And three, what does the outlook look like for him in the future with Kansas City? Well, number one, I thought he played a lot better than he did last year at this time. Uh, you know, when he went up against Cleveland, it looked like he was off a little bit. And I think there was a lot of reasons for that. I don't think he was comfortable yet with the offense. When he was in Baltimore, it was more of a play action, kind of an aggressive pass protection type of a scheme that they implemented. Uh, with Lamar Jackson back there. So he didn't look like he was comfortable, even though he had a couple of weeks of practice underneath his belt. He didn't look very comfortable. I thought he looked more comfortable this week. I thought he did a good job. Listen, it's all going to come down to what if he wants to get paid, this is the week because he's going to be going up against Khalil Mack. All right. And what, so who do you, what do you do? Do you take your offensive line and you slide it to the guy that wants to be the highest paid left tackle in the league against Khalil Mack? Or do you slide it to uh, a guy that is basically, you know, he's a good player. He's, you know, and, and Wiley, he's a good player. Uh, but, you know, he's what he's probably a top 30 or 40 right tackle. I mean, he's not a guy that is going to be running out there in the Pro Bowl, you know. So he's going against Joey Bosa, right? So Joey Bosa is pretty damn good. And so is Cleo Mack. So what are you going to do? You're going to turn your protection to help Wiley. That's what you're going to do. And you're going to have, you know, uh, the center going that way, the guard going that way. They're going to be chipping. They're going to be pushing that way. And guess who's going to be one-on-one on the backside? And that's Khalil Mack against, against Orlando Brown. Orlando Brown, I know you're watching the show. I know you're a big fan of Arrowhead Attic, all right? Sterling is a good buddy of yours. Uh, this is it. You want to get paid? Show me, baby. It's the show me state. If you shut down Khalil Mack, it's going to go a long way to what you want to get next year. So don't tell me that you want to be paid like a top one or two offensive tackle if you don't play like it against the superstars. And the AFC West was proactive to go out and find superstar defensive linemen, especially defensive ends, to limit what Patrick Mahomes can do. That's why it was so important for Orlando Brown to get his ass into camp and get his butt into shape and play early and play with the arrow pointing up, which he was he didn't start last year. This is the challenge. Khalil Mack against Orlando Brown. The big sombrero, as Marty used to say. The big sombrero is on Orlando Brown. So when he go into the locker this this week, the red man who is our strength conditioning coach would have put the sombrero right on his stool. It's his, this is it. You want to be the best. Show me, baby, because this is this is the game that you got to show me. Oh, my gosh. Could run through a wall right now. 
I'm trying to block Khalil. It's not going to work, but I would try for you to block Khalil Mack right now. Again, make sure you check out your book, View from the Center, Tim Grunard. Man, if you want more of that, read this book. I do want to give some uh, some questions that we've got earlier sure. on. We have a Discord channel. If you'd like to buy in, guys, everyone in the comments who's watching this, you can. It will be in the description of the YouTube video. Uh, you get to hang with us, Matt Verderam, myself, Patrick Allen. It's a very, very fun spot. We talk everything from music, Chiefs, Royals, all of it's right there. So if you want, if you want to become a member, check the description. Uh, some questions here for you. Uh, Jeremy asks, can you ask what the toughest aspect of playing for Marty was? Wow. Yeah, well, we talk about it in the book a little bit. Marty was one of those guys that he was an overachiever as a player, right? So he worked his butt off to stay in the league, to be a part of the league, and to get on the football field. Well, when he coached, that's what he expected his players to do also in practice. So the hardest thing about playing for Marty was that every practice was a grind. Every practice was three hours. Every practice was tough. Every practice was in full pads. Every practice, you know, you you had to bring your juice because if you didn't bring your juice, you know, he was going to start the whole damn thing over and you were going to be out there for hours and hours and hours. So the hardest thing about we used to call him the man with no eyes because he had these big old Coke bottle glasses. And if anybody's ever seen Cool Hand Luke, when the uh, the, the guy with the gun is walking around and the security guard or the, the prison guard, they said, don't mess with the man with no eyes. We call Marty the man with no eyes. And he'd walk up and down the stretching line with those glasses on. And Marty's and, and Carl and, uh, and Dave Zott would say, Granny, don't look at him. Don't look at the man with no eyes. And uh, because he knew there was going to be a tough practice. So the hardest thing about playing for Marty is every day was a grind. Every day was tough. But that was what Marty Ball was. It was tough, physical football. It may have hurt us when we got the playoffs. But I'll tell you what, teams did not want to play against the Kansas City Chiefs of the 90s. Uh, that's a great answer. Good question, too, by the way. That was fantastic. Uh, Chris R. asked, did you ever feel in the huddle with either Gerbach or Bono, oh, man, this isn't working? <laughs> Well, yeah, I did in the Denver playoff game uh, when I, I talk a tiny bit. Actually, I, the very first line of the Rich Gannon section. Uh, I don't know if you have the book, but uh, I'll let you while I'm kind of talking. Flip open to the Rich Gannon section. I want you to read the first line of the of, of the Rich Gannon part. That's probably like chapter five or six. But there was a time in the game with Rich Gannon uh, and Elvis Gerback uh, with this whole situation. And in Elvis, you know, he's banged up. Uh, you know, he was hurt and uh, uh, Marty made the decision. Hey, we have got to go with the guy who's a starter. And in that line, what did I say? Man, I, I'm on the Marcus Allen section. Give me oh. a second. That's chapter five. Yo, Sterling, you're killing me here, man. You got to get your timing down. I, I'm trying, man. Right. This is live, baby. If we yeah, recorded I know, it, I know, see. I know. That's why I put you on a spot. I want to see if you're a pro or not here. You know, you, Allegretti wouldn't have fucked it up like you did. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Right? You're talking about Allegretti. All right. So, uh, you know, come on, let's go. Sometimes you're, on me. Be, you're you in said, situation. In fairness, you said chapter five. Chapter five starts with Marcus Allen. Well, they're all in that chapter. But go, yeah, go ahead. Flip, kind of flip through. But since Sterling can't find it, I'll tell you what I said. Don't ask me about the Elvis Gerback and Rich Gannon situation because. <laughs> Uh, I had to say that Elvis Gerbach should have been in. 
because he was going to be in. Marty had a rule that you don't lose your job by injury. So when you're healthy, you go back in. Now, we all knew that Rich Gannon was the better quarterback at the time. He was the hot quarterback. We won a bunch of games leading into that game. And when Elvis went in there, we all were like, oh, shit. You know, I wish Rich was in here. And then about the middle of the first quarter, going into the second quarter, we knew, God, how do you know, do we let Rich uh, Elvis get knocked out here and put Rich in and maybe win this game? Uh, but we thought better of it, and we didn't do that. But uh, Rich Gannon, uh, that situation is probably the one time when, uh, you know, and Bones was Bones. Bones was fine. Bones was a competitor. He, he never really hurt nobody. He just was kind of going about his business. We ran the football. He kind of threw a couple of play actions. The only time that he embarrassed himself is when Joe Valerio beat him down the field against the Arizona Cardinals on a boot. And, and, and Valerio's like, hey, let's go. Come on, Bones, let's go. And he's running backwards as Bono's running full speed forward to try and score a touchdown. That was Oh, see, I like these questions. You're honest about it. This is what's great. You get on to former players who actually uh, enjoy talking about it. This is great. And you call me out. Basically, yeah. you know, my fuck That's up. the best part of it. Hey, you know, that is the best part. Yeah, and that's I mean, what's you, fun doing a lot. I mean, listen, you, you, you want to be all, you want to be that guy, man. Hey, sometimes you're thrown into the game, and You got to be ready to go. <laughs> really, from now on, you'll be prepared, ready to go, man. You say, thanks, Grunny. I appreciate that. Thank you, Grunny. I appreciate it. See, I'm also ready to go through a brick wall. I that's already right. said I'm going to try and guard or freaking block Khalil Mack for you. Yeah, I would, uh, take, I, I would think twice about that. Straight. No, no, but, no. I, I would get one snap, and then I'm done. For like seven months, and that's on the short side. Early in the book, I talk about my experience against uh, Cornelius Bennett when I was a freshman, and he was a All-American senior at Alabama. And we're playing in the Iron Bowl, and uh, the offensive tackle at Notre Dame uh, uh, got beat, uh, and they called it the sack. So if you you Google Alabama in the sack, you'll see Steve Berline getting cut in half by Cornelius Bennett, right? So after that play, Lou Holtz pulled out, his name was Byron Spruill, pulled him out and put me in there. And I was a freshman in the Iron Bowl. It was like 110 degrees out. And I looked up, and there's Cornelius Bennett standing up, an All-American, and he just abused me. I mean, <laughs> I don't even think I touched them. I think they rolled out away from me the whole time. And I got out of that game, and I said, if this is the guys I got to play against, I'm never going to have any kind of success in college football. And I was feeling pretty down about myself. And I kind of worked my way through it. Fast forward to the Buffalo Monday night game in 1991. And Cornelius Bennett had to go and play the Mike linebacker because Daryl Talley was hurt. So all of a sudden I look up, right? And there's Cornelius Bennett. And I'm thinking back to you as a young 17-year-old kid down in Alabama in this heat and going up against one of the best outside linebackers in the, in, in the nation, All-American. And, and I was like, payback is a bitch, buddy. And I'm not going to say I cheap shotted him, but I didn't help him up. I promise you that. <laughs> and I kicked his ass that whole game because he was stuck in there and he had nowhere to go. So I was getting on him and driving him. And after the game, you know, he kind of said something like, you know, you know, hey, what the, what was that all about? I said, hey, payback's a bitch, man. You remember? <laughs> he didn't remember, obviously, because I was just some schmo they threw in. Uh, but he remembered the sack. But, hey, listen, so – you never know. You know, you, sometimes you're put in those situations. You just got to go out there and do the best you possibly can, Sterling. So I would give you a couple snaps against them. Well, see, there we go. And fast forward even farther, and now you're in the Chiefs' ring of honor. There you go. I think there it worked go. out for you pretty well. Uh, yeah. What was it like going up against Neil Smith 
after obviously leaving the Chiefs, going to Denver, that had to be a very interesting situation, right? Yeah, I loved I loved Neil. In fact, it, you know, once again in in the book, I uh, I tell stories about Neil and I. You know, we um, we had we probably fought at least once or twice a week um, during practice, and you know, at first it was you know because he didn't like I was going full speed or I didn't like he was going full speed. And it was like a two minute situation and he'd come inside and I'd cheap shot him or something. And next thing you know, we'd be at blows. Uh, and we found that whenever we did that, the intensity picked up in practice. I mean, all of a sudden now the defense was foaming at the mouth, ready to go. Cause you know, they got Neil got in the fight. He's our guy. Let's go. And the offense said, Granny got in the fight. Let's go. So every once in a while we get in practice, we kind of look at each other when things were kind of, going a little bit, you know, soft or a little lame or a little quiet. And we look at each other and then, bam, it was like WWE wrestling. Oh, it's a big fight. And then everybody would get all going again, and we'd kind of wink at each other and say, hey, we got to get the practice going. And Marty, he'd be annoyed, but he knew what we were doing, right? So he didn't get too mad at us. But, yeah, so uh, it, I'll tell you, when he went to Denver, I, it was actually easier for me because I didn't have to go against him as much. And, we, you know, in practice, we had fights all the time. And then we were playing Denver. Where I barely got out to him. So, uh, but I missed him. He was a great teammate and a great friend. As far as that goes in the NFL, for example, Russell Wilson leaving Seattle, going to Denver, right? He was booed. I was a little surprised. I mean, that's a guy who won a Super Bowl for Seattle. Julian, this two- isn't baseball. This isn't when Hosmer walks up to the plate with the – No, no, no. And, it's different, and too. Hey, it's good to see you again. Okay. Oh, it's the hey, Moose. We love you, Moose. Bullshit. Part of that you pisses me that. off, too. We're going to kick your ass. We want to knock you out. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. You know why? That's right. apathy. Apathy sets in, and you no longer have that drive. When fans have apathy, what happens? They don't care. That right. shows sometimes they don't care about the team. With Russell Wilson, that was a guy who was there for a long time, did win a Super Bowl, took him to another one. Obviously, there were some issues. Not a great team surrounding him for a while. Part of that could have come from the fact he wanted more money, with more money to the quarterback, less money for everyone else. But then you hear some of his teammates post-game, they weren't too happy. I mean, how common is it when a guy leaves that it feels like there's a massive stirrup like this post-game? Yeah, that was – I didn't see that part of it. Uh, I did see the fans, and I understand that. And I actually like that. In fact, if you're a player, you should like that. I, I never liked the idea of, you know, cheering for a guy that left, you know, when they walk up to the plate. I it's not, not, wasn't a big fan of that when Royals and games, you know, everybody's giving a standing ovation to, uh, uh, you know, the Moose when he cut them. Forget that. He left. Screw him. I'm not cheering <laughs> for him. Right. Sure. So, I mean, so, but maybe that's just a football mentality. Uh, but, you know, sometimes guys just get their feelings hurt. You know, he was the undisputed leader of that team and he left them. And, you know, and they probably thought, yeah, listen, you know, he didn't want to be around us and they took it personal. But really, it's business. It, it, it is what it is. You only have a certain amount of years to play football. Uh, I was lucky enough um, and, quite frankly, probably too dumb to leave and try to become a free agent somewhere. I just always said, Hey, I want to be here. Just, yeah. You want to redo it? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Uh, so I just wanted to be in Kansas city. So I was here 11 years. So I never really experienced that. I was always in the same place, but I could see how, you know, guys have to make business decisions to take care of their family. You only have a certain amount of time to play. So, you, you know, if you're going to get paid more somewhere, 
and you don't feel that, you know, that intrinsic value that you really want to live in a city like I did, uh, then, you know, why not go? But you're going to have to pay the piper. You know, the players, a lot of players aren't going to be happy with it. And the fans certainly, and they shouldn't. They, there's no they, there's no responsibility to welcome a guy back. You know, mm-hmm. hey, listen, he left. You know, I'm sure that if, I promise you, if Russell Wilson went to the uh, seafood market down on the Pikes Pier or whatever it is in the offseason, he'd be given all kinds of autographs. But it's a game. It's football. It's a 12th man. I give credit to Seattle fans. Just on the same token here with Tony Gonzalez, that's been a hot topic for a long time in Kansas City. I'm on record saying I think it's time to forgive some of the maybe I'm soft. You can call me soft if you want, but I think it's time to forgive some of the comments that were made. I think some could have been taken a little bit out of context, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And what was said was perfectly fine for everyone to be up in arms about. But Tony Gonzalez, in my opinion, one of, if not the best tight end of all time, when Chiefs fans sometimes don't claim him as their own, they say, oh, no, he, that's a Falcon. I'm sitting here going, he did so much for so long on some, some teams that didn't succeed for a long time, right? How do you feel about that whole situation? I'm on record saying it was a dumb comment. They were dumb comments. Sure. And I get the little puppy when I, I cocked my head a little bit at the sound <laughs> of that. Like, you know, what is he saying? I love Tony, though. He was my teammate. For a lot of years, we won a lot of football games with him. He's a good guy. Uh, I, you know, every time I see him, we give himself a couple of hugs. We wasn't the closest with him, uh, but we, you know, we were good teammates together. I just think that you know, a lot of times you you're trying to appease a fan base, or you're trying to do some stuff, and you forget about how it's going to affect the other one. And that's what happened a little bit with Tony. You know, um, there's no excuse for some of the things that he said. But, you know, I still think that he's a Kansas City Chief. He's, he's one of us. He's one of the family. You know, sometimes the uncle says stupid things, too, at a family party. But you still love him. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Because I say stupid things all the time. Yeah, me too. I don't know if people love me, but, you know, I say stupid things all the time. You get invited uh, back, Sterling. I, I do. I do, typically. That, that's what I'm talking about. You talked about it a lot in your book. Again, Tim Gronard, View from the Center. You talked a lot about how special it was to be inducted into the Ring of Honor. You touched on it a lot early on, actually. Um, we did have a question from Derek. He said, how special was it for you? I know you touch on it a lot here, so don't, don't give everything away. But you looked really emotional. You got into it. There were tears. Can you kind of walk us through why it was so emotional for you? When I was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in, in 1990, I was flown out to uh, Kansas City the very next day and met with Carl Peterson uh, at the door, went into his office, got a little view, uh, a little, excuse me, a little tour of the facility and everything else. And then we walked out in the field and I looked up and I saw these names up there. And I said to Carl, I said, boy, that's pretty cool. What is that? Like the Hall of Fame or something? He goes, yeah, that's our Ring of Honor Hall of Fame. And he said, that's what you should aspire to. And we drafted you to be here for a long time and you should aspire. And then from that point on, that was my goal. Uh, it wasn't my goal really was not to be in the big Hall of Fame. If it happened, it happened. Uh, that's something you just can't control. I felt like, listen, if I gave everything I can and I played through pain and injury and I stayed here in Kansas City and we won a lot of football games and I'd have an opportunity someday to be in that ring of fame. And every game I walked out, I promise you, every game I would put my helmet in the same spot in the corner of the end zone and I would look up at the same names up there and uh, and I would say, you know, someday I'm hoping to have my name up there in that ring of fame. And that was my goal. 
And, you know, it took 20 some years to get there. And there was a lot of people that said, hey, it should have happened earlier, yada, yada, yada. But it happened at the perfect time for me. And I'll tell you why. Number one, um, my, my kids were old enough to understand what it really meant because they went through the trials and tribulations of sport. I had uh, three Division One athletes, two swimmers and a football player. Uh, they all were high school athletes. They all had wins. They all had losses. They all had times when they were patted on the back. Sometimes they were kicked in the ass. There were times when they were overlooked. There were times when they probably got attention when they shouldn't have. But the reality is you go through the ups and downs of a career. You go through the ups and downs of, 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 a, uh, of an off season. You go through the ups and downs of, of, of living in Kansas City, you know, with the good things and bad things that will happen to you as a family and as a person. And guess what? Um, you know, when this happened, it was just it was great because it was something that I made as a goal and decided, hey, listen, I'm going to give it my best shot to get up there. And when it happened, um, it, it made my career. It really did. So how much did that play into? Because you mentioned it a little bit. You go, if I was maybe a little bit more business savvy, could have seen some more money elsewhere. But yeah. you decided to stay true to yourself, your original goal, right, of getting up there. How much did that actually play a factor? Because we look around the NFL now, and it does seem a lot of players are still in it for the love of the game, for the recognition the legacy, right? That's a big deal. But even when you see guys like Tom Brady, wasn't all his fault why he left, right? There was some disconnect with him and Bill. But like when you see Tom Brady, a guy who's been there for so long in New England, no one thought he was ever going to leave that organization. But when that happens, I guess it comes down to how much do players now compared to then has it always been the same way, value money, legacy, or is everyone just different? Yeah, you know what? Lou Holtz gave me a, a great line at one point in my career. Um, you know, he said, hey, listen, Tim Grenard, are you happy in Kansas City with the Kansas City Chiefs? He said, yes, Coach. Is your wife happy? I said, yes, Coach, my wife's happy. Are your kids happy? I said, yes, Coach, my kids are happy. Don't mess with happy. Don't mess with happy. I was happy here. Yeah, I made, made some more money somewhere else, and – uh, maybe, you know, would have, could have won a Super Bowl if, you know, guys, I tell you, there's three or four guys that backed me up that got cut and got picked up other places and won Super Bowls. So that was the best feeling. Uh, but you know what? I'm glad I was here. My kids were raised here. Uh, I'm a part of the community. I'll always have a, a, a spot here in Kansas City. And, um, yeah, I think sometimes people chase money. And I some, and sometimes, listen, Dick Vermeil, after 11 years, said, hey, Granny, yeah, we probably should retire. And he was right. And I was kind of ready to do it anyways. But, he, you know, I, it really wasn't like I was given an option to keep playing. Uh, you know, he wanted to change things up a little bit. And I understood that. And, I, you know, I could have went and, and stole a couple of years somewhere. But I decided I didn't want to do that. First of all, I'm going to give you another Lou Holtz. You ready? He's, if you, he say, if you miss one day, you know it in practice, right? If you miss one practice, you know it. If you miss two practices, the coach knows it. If you miss three practices, everyone knows it. The key is to make sure that you're the one who knows it and not everybody else. So the key was for me is I wanted to get out when I knew it was the right time, not when the coaches knew it was the right time or not when the fans said, God, why is that guy still hanging around? So it really worked out well. 11 years, I had a lot of surgeries, a lot of different things, fought through Marty Ball, for a lot of years, uh, but was lucky enough to just be here in Kansas City 11 years, and that was just about right. Great Lou impersonation, by the way. That was fantastic. 
That was great. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard plenty of it. And in, yeah, in the book, I, in the book, I tell some great stories of how Lou got after my ass. That's for sure. So. Get getting a lot of questions from Chris, uh, Benjamin, Nate. They're all saying, "What do you like about Creed Humphrey's game? What do you see from Creed Humphrey as a former center? Again, Chiefs Hall of Famer. How do you see the correlation? What do you see from Creed? Yeah, I like his nastiness and toughness. I like the way he finishes plays." I love when centers finish plays. I love when you see guys down the field, you know, taking guys off the pile or finishing linebackers and getting on guys. And, you know, there was a prime example in a game last last week where uh, it was a counter play and, and he blocked back and the guy was trying to get over the top and he was kept fighting that up upfield shoulder and cut him off and the back cut right behind him and got another five or six yards because he was finishing the play. I love the way he finishes. I think he's a nice player. I, I think that he's an ascending player. I think he's going to get better and better. Uh, I did make I, – I am on the record saying the sophomore year, your second year is always your hardest year because, number one, the first year you're off adrenaline and you're just playing out there and you don't know what you don't know. And then the second year, you know, you think you got it kind of figured out, but guess what? The defensive coordinators across from you, they got you figured out too. So it's a game of chess. You got to make a move, they make a move, then you got to make a move again. So I'm on record saying that, you know, this is one of those years where it'll be interesting to see how productive he is, and I think he will. But he, if you ask him after this year, I bet he says, yeah, man, that was, that was, pretty, that was probably harder than my rookie year. And, uh, but I really think that he's a, a, a nice football player that does a great job of finishing plays, and I love that about him. Of all the injuries you've suffered, <laughs> what's, I would say what's the, the one that you've played through and you're like, holy shit. That was difficult because, for example, I have turf toe. I'm Charmin Ultra Soft. I am not playing in a softball game this weekend, even with beer. Trust me, I tried this weekend. I tried to crush some beers, uh, watch the Mizzou game. So that ended up in a lot of shoot it up, man. Just shoot that up. <laughs> so what hey, was the injury you went through? Like, like, like Joe Moore, my offensive line coach at Notre Dame, would say all the time, it's a long way from your heart, Sterling. You're going to be okay. <laughs> No, dude, I'm soft, man. Yeah. I, I'm telling you, this is – well, for a lot of reasons, I'm not in the NFL, never in the NFL. One of the reasons, I'm fucking soft, man. Come on. Well, I will tell you, my last year in the NFL, and one of the reasons why I did retire, I had off-season surgery. And I, I remember that, you know, I, and I had probably eight surgeries on my left knee, and this was the eighth. No, this was the seventh, and then the eighth was a replacement. So this is the last surgery before I had it replaced. And, I, and so um, I went into surgery, and it took a lot longer than I thought it would. And, and the doctor for the Chiefs came out and told my wife, yeah, there was some more scar tissue and some different stuff we had to take out. It took a little longer. It's probably going to take a little bit longer to heal. And uh, so fast forward to, um, you know, the, the whole year, I just didn't feel right. It was my left leg. And anytime I had to push off to go to the right, I just didn't feel like I had the power. So I would do this tape job. It was like the X's. It was like tape job that would start up on your thigh and there'd be one going this way, one going this way, probably six or seven. They put a knee brace on. I looked like a mummy. And it was, it really kept my knee solid. And I was figuring, you know, I wonder why, you know, it's just not right. Well, I get to, uh, you know, Later on, probably 10, 15 years down the road, I go to a doctor outside. I'm not blaming the Chiefs organization for this or not. Don't get me wrong. But I, I went and, and the, the doctor says, when did you tear your ACL? Because you don't have one. So I played my last year without an ACL. So there you go. Uh, really weird. It was loose. It was, it was never right. I had to tape it all the time. 
And I didn't know that that was it, but I went to this doctor who ended up being actually a Royals doctor. And he's like, you know, you don't have an ACL. He said, when did you tear it? Did they ever fix it? And I'm like, I never tore an ACL. I had cartilage issues. He said, well, you, you showed me the MRI and showed me the x-ray, no ACL. So my last year, I played without an ACL. And, you know, and I think, once again, I'm, I'm not trying to cause any controversy or anything else. It's been a long time. And I'm happy with the Chiefs. Everything's great. But if I would have sat out a year, they were going to have to pay me my last year of my contract right, which was the biggest year, and, and then I would have probably sat out a year and, you know, had another surgery and had to replace, and then they would have to pay me, you know, so it just didn't, it wasn't meant to be, but that was it, so I played without an ACL my last year. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it is, you know, I, I don't know how it, it did it. I, if I would have known it, I probably wouldn't have done it, but I didn't know it, and, but I just, my knee was never right. It took a long time, and I remember Gunther just get down my ass, especially early uh, in, in in training camp about, you know, you, you got to get out there and practice. And I was like, man, this thing doesn't feel right. And I always, I didn't miss, I played 120 games in a row. Uh, so I didn't miss games. Uh, and I didn't miss any games that year either. Uh, but it was, it was one of those things where it was really a difficult process and it really drove me to, to retire. So. Do, do you think that that's a NFL not just I'm not again not blame the Chiefs at all. Yeah. But it, it just I don't think that just would be Chiefs centric, right? Is that something no. you think goes on throughout all NFL teams? Uh, do you think that maybe it's slowed down a bit because of the I don't want to say investment potentially in players, right? Like in Mahomes, if Mahomes had a torn ACL, I don't think we would see him yeah. out there, right? I think they'd be maybe more up front. Or is it just that also players were maybe I don't want to say tougher, right? But they also I don't know. Question less played through things more often. Yeah, we, a situation you know, we, too? we, you know, we just, it was, you know, just like the concussion deal, man. I mean, we played with concussions. We knew we had concussions and, you know, concussion was got a badge of honor. You got knocked out or you got, you were seeing, you were seeing, uh, you know, stars. That was cool. Nowadays you're out for a week or two. So um, listen, I'm not saying that's good or bad or indifferent. That's just the way it was. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's different. It's different now, and it's different for a good way. And listen, I'm not blaming the Chiefs at all. I would have probably ended up playing anyways. I didn't care. I just wish I would have known. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I'm very happy with uh, my career. It was about the right time to retire. Uh, and I just wasn't, like, like I said, you know, I knew at that point that I just wasn't right. And it was better for me to get out when I knew it and not the coaches. And not the, you know, you always want people to say, oh, man, you could play another year. You don't want people saying, gosh, you should have quit a year before. So that's kind of where I was at when I stopped playing for the Chiefs. Not just with Marty Schottenheimer, but day to day, week to week. What is something that's way more difficult than the average fan would think in an NFL career? Because I always thought travel, for example, is something that I don't think fans always take into account. I think that could be a little bit more difficult. Um, my old basketball coach played in the NBA for a long time. If you know Scott Wedman, right? Yeah. He's my basketball oh, coach. Well. And he, he said it wasn't a big deal for him, but I would have to imagine just the grind of flying places, the time changes, that would have to be a grind. But for you, for example, what was something in day-to-day, week-to-week that was so difficult that the majority of fans wouldn't recognize? Yeah, so I tell people this all the time. Uh, you play on a Sunday, you wake up Monday morning, you feel like you're going to get hit by a truck. I mean, you're just sore everywhere. Um, so you get in there. 
Uh, you go get some treatment. You go in the hot tub, cold tub, get you know some ice and some st- stimulation stuff uh, on your injuries. Uh, you go and you work out. You get the lactic acid out. You do some running. And then Tuesday's your day off, right? And you would think, wow, that's great. Tuesday's day off. You'll feel, Tuesday's the worst because you're laying around all day. And by the middle of the afternoon, you're like, you could barely get up. So then, you know, you get to Wednesday and, you know, the first couple minutes of practice, I mean, you're achy and you're sore, but you start to loosen up a little bit. So I always tell people that, hey, you know, in the NFL, uh, you've, you're about maybe 20% on Monday. You're probably about 15% on Tuesday. You're probably about 40 to 35 to 40% on Wednesday. You're probably about 60% on Thursday. And you might get up to 75 or 80% on Friday. And then Saturday you travel and you start feeling better. And then you start the whole damn process over. So yes. that's the thing. I mean, you're never 100%. So anybody who says, are you 100%, you're never 100%. But if you can get yourself up to about 75 to 80% by Sunday, that's great. But you got to start the whole damn process over every week. So the next week you wake up again on Sunday – I mean, on Monday, you feel like you got hit by a truck. You go to treatment. You have the Tuesday where you're feeling crappy. And then Wednesday, you got a tough practice. Thursday, you got a tough practice. Friday, you know, you got a kind of a, a more of a shells practice, which nowadays is a regular NFL practice, which is easy. And then, you know, Saturday, you traveled or you, you went home and got yourself watched a couple of college games. You started the process over. So that's the hard thing about playing in the NFL. You're just always going through a process to try to play the next week. Something I've been hearing a lot, bringing it back to today, is you look at a lot of good teams. Let's say the Rams, the Buccaneers, uh, Cowboys were supposed to be good. They're obviously not, especially not without Dak Prescott. Uh, The Packers, to an extent, they don't have good offensive lines. I've been hearing this a lot as a knock for teams. The Bengals obviously come to mind here. Is this a case where teams aren't investing enough in the offensive line, certain positions, wide receiver, obviously quarterback, so much money is invested here and not enough in the offensive line. Is it a case of defensive linemen? Maybe the average guy is getting after the quarterback more than the average guy of 40 years ago. Or what do you think here from some of these contending teams who the knock against them has been poor offensive line play? Yeah, um, I don't know if I if I buy that. Um, I think the offensive line play has changed. Uh, the RPO has killed offensive line play because you don't know whether it's a run or pass. So you, now all of a sudden you have to hesitate a little bit. So, you know, we saw it a couple of times this week where guys were downfield. I think Creed was – or somebody was downfield on a pass. It wasn't his fault. It was a, you know – he was blocking the play and, you know, if the quarterback hesitates at all and hits that second guy in a seam or something, then, you know, guy's going to be downfield. So I think some of the aggressiveness and some of the toughness has been kind of drilled out of players uh, because you just don't have, okay, listen, it's a pass here. So we're in pass protection and uh, we're going to retreat with, 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 with nastiness. But on the, when we're running the ball, we're going to punish people. We're going to get up on a second level. We're going to punish people. And I think at times now, Guys hesitate. And in the NFL, I said all the time on the radio, if you hesitate, you lose. So I think offensive line play has kind of changed a little bit where the RPO has taken away a little bit of the aggressiveness. And I think at times the offensive line um, struggle a little bit with making those adjustments. Uh, but uh, they, listen, I, I, I wish that they were investing in offensive line play like they are now when I was playing. 
because you know the 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 eleventh guy on the offensive line roster is making more than most of the first and second guys when I was playing, so uh, they're paying them. Uh, but I do think that uh, you know offensive line play has struggled a little bit just with the nature of offenses nowadays in the NFL. Tim Grunard, get his book, View from the Center. I know you're doing some book signings coming up as well. If you liked what we talked about today, at least from what I've heard, Tim, you'll be giving at least a little snippet, talk some shit with these guys, give some uh, some quotes, meet you, autographs. I promise when you come out, you're going to have a good time. I'm, you know what? I, I mentioned it in the book. I had one experience when I was growing up and I don't hate to say because I loved Walter Payton, loved him. Walter Payton was was my favorite football player of all time. But I went to the Evergreen Park Mall in Chicago on the south side to get his autograph. And I waited for about an hour, hour and a half in a long line to get his autograph. When I went up and I handed uh, Walter a photo for him to sign, he signed it and didn't even look up. And I was thinking, you know. I waited all this time. All I wanted to do is make eye contact. I just wanted to have some kind of, you know, bond or some kind of like with my guy. And he never even looked up, just signed it. And I went about my merry way. And at that point, I talk about it in the book. I said, I will always look you in the eye and I'll always say hello. And I will always be approachable when I'm doing these things. So when you come out, expect to see the same guy you see right here. We're going to have fun. I'm going to sign autographs because I promise you, I will not ever just sign an autograph and push it off and not look up at you. Cause just like, you know, the lessons you learn in life, I learned that lesson. I'll never do it. So come on out and visit with me. This comment puts it perfectly. Final comment. I have to read. Jeremy says, Tim needs to run for president. I think that's yeah. perfect. Come on. What do you think? Too many skeletons. <laughs> yeah. From you blocking guys, the pancakes, <laughs> there's a skeleton, Tim Grunard. This was the Arrowhead Attic podcast. Tim, this was an absolute blast. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Again, one last time, get his book, View from the Center. Everyone who comments, always, always appreciate it. Casey Bierko, best beer in the world in Kansas City. Guys, we'll see you Thursday. Can't wait. Can you believe it's just a couple days away, another football game? God is great, baby. Let's go, Chiefs.